This weekend, get to Kohl's and take an extra 15% off. Save on the Ninja Foodi Grill, now just $279.99. Take 50% off all Serta bedding. Get up to 40% off Sonoma Bath and so much more. Plus, get a little more for your wallet with Kohl's Cash. Plus, fast and free store pickup. Let the gifting start for those close to your heart. Shop Kohl's and Kohl's.com. Select styles. Offers valid October 9th through 18th. 15% off with promo code LEAVES. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. I don't know, but every time I hear the beginning of this song, I just want to dance. And today is not one of those dancing days because... So much has been happening in the news that's actually a little distressing, unexpected. You're listening to the Sarah Carter Podcast Show, and we're at the beautiful Hillsdale College Kirby Center, and I'm just going to jump right into it with the news that the Inspector General Michael Horowitz with the Department of Justice is basically ready to release his report. This is the first report, and it focuses specifically on James Comey. And his memos. Remember the leaked memos, some of which were classified to his college professor friend uh, in New York that was then leaked to the New York Times at the request of former FBI director James Comey. And remember, he testified before Congress that he specifically leaked those memos so that with the hope that a special counsel would be appointed to investigate President Trump. So he admitted to this. He admitted to this. So this was uh, an incredibly important time during those hearings. And he admitted finally that he had leaked memos. And remember, Congress had asked him before in earlier uh, testimony, you know, have you ever leaked any information? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Comey had said no. He had said no. He had said no. Finally, he had to admit this. Uh, This is very important because Inspector General Michael Horowitz is expected to deliver, and it's imminent, it could happen any day now, a report that is very damning of what Comey did, and he actually referred Comey for prosecution to the DOJ. Now, what comes next? I expected that. We all did, in fact. Greg Jarrett and I talked about it a number of times on Sean's show John Solomon, who actually broke this story with The Hill, had spoken about it on uh, the Sean Hannity show with me. So we were very sure that the inspector general, Michael Horowitz, would do this. What we didn't expect was the turn of events that happened at the Department of Justice under William Barr. That Barr would choose to decline prosecuting James Comey over the leaked memorandums. Now, several of those memorandums were post-conditioned classified, which means that he had all of his memos. He said that he believed that these were his own memoirs, that he was writing them for his own personal recollection so that if he ever had to go back, he would have those. Almost like if you were writing a journal, right? But still, everything that is written and contained within the FBI while you're at the Bureau stays at the Bureau. That is the policy of the Bureau. Nobody can walk out with memos, even if they're their own, and keep those memos. So we discovered two things. Judicial Watch, so amazing. What an incredible watchdog group. How much work have they done 
fighting so that we can know the truth. They fought the FBI uh, with the Freedom of Information Act request that they wanted all the information pertaining to James Comey and the FBI in these memos. And what was discovered by Judicial Watch was that the FBI had basically gone to Comey's home. I don't want to use the word raided because I don't believe they went in with guns ablazing like they did with Roger Stone, who is an old man who basically was sleeping in bed with his wife and was disheveled, answered the door and had an armada surrounding his house. No, Roger Stone got completely different treatment for nothing, really. I mean, it wasn't like he was going to flee the country. It isn't like he's a mafioso. It wasn't like he was Al-Qaeda, you know, but he got treated like that. No, I'm sure at James Comey's house, they let him know they were coming over. They knocked on the door. Hey, can we come in? <laughs> we're looking around. His wife made them some coffee. They all chit-chatted in the kitchen. He turned over the memos and they left. Pretty much what happened. But now we know that the FBI was there and they did pick up those memos. So FBI raids Comey's house. Michael Horowitz wants him prosecuted. And DOJ William Barr declines. Let me play a clip right here of Senator Lindsey Graham. He's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, an incredible American. He's been very outspoken about things. And this is what he had to say about Barr's decision. If Bill Barr decided not to prosecute, on disclosing the memos, I accept his judgment. I've known him for 20 years, and I have no desire for him to be like Mueller. I want him to do what he thinks is right by the law and not prosecute anybody if you don't think the case is there because somebody else got mistreated. There's no reason to continue that practice. So if it's true, and we'll know pretty soon, it's stunning beyond stunning. It is. Wow. Stunning beyond stunning. But what does that mean? What does that mean to us as Americans? So you write a bad report about someone, you admonish them publicly, and then nothing happens to them, at least for this. Look, I want to trust Senator Graham. I know he's known William Barr for 20 years. I've spoken to sources uh, in the government. I have to say government sources, and they have confirmed everything that John Solomon wrote uh, in this report. I got to tell you, I was so disappointed. I know Tom Fitton with Judicial Watch was incredibly disappointed. I think we made our disappointment very well known on Sean Hannity's show last night. But what I want to say here is something important. And I tried to take a step back and say, why would William Barr make this decision? You know, the standard for the Department of Justice is can they prove Comey broke the law? I think they can prove that, that he walked right up to the edge of it. I don't know if they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury whether or not Comey had broken the law. Because Comey can argue this, and I've spoken to several prosecutors and defense attorneys about this, uh, what happened here. Well, what Comey can say is this, look, maybe I was negligent, but I wasn't grossly negligent. I didn't actually leak the documents that were considered classified. I didn't actually hand those over. What he did was absolutely disturbing, though. And I'm going to tell you what I would have done. Not that I have any power here, but I and this is what makes me very curious as to William Barr's motivation, uh, because we know there's two. There are only two leakers here <laughs> in this story. It had to have either been the DOJ or it had to have been the inspector general's office. That's it. Right. Unless it was Comey. 
But look, the whole thing is this. Why say anything at all? Why not just let the report go to the public, let the public take the report in, and then wait? Because we're hearing now that the bigger report, which is what we've talked about before on the show, Michael Horowitz's second report on the FBI's handling of the Russia investigation is going to be the most important report. It is going to expose everything that Michael Horowitz can get his hands on. Remember, he interviewed Christopher Steele. He's been interviewing people all over the place, but Michael Horowitz is limited. That's why there's John Durham. And that's why Durham, if he calls a grand jury, if we find that out, this is a criminal prosecution. And this is going to go far beyond Comey. Because remember, we've got Peter Strzok, we've got Lisa Page, we've got Bruce Orr, we have Nellie Orr, we have Glenn Simpson from Fusion GPS. We have all of these players. Oh, by the way, let's not leave out former head of the CIA, John Brennan, right? I mean, he's a character. Wow, that that guy just never stops. Although they've been a little bit quieter lately, you know, kind of interesting. And we've got James Clapper. So we have that second report. But remember this, Comey said it himself. For the last two years, this prosecution, this special counsel, has been going after the president of the United States of America, the president of the United States. And everyone that surrounded him has made this administration's life miserable. It's amazing all the things that this president has been able to accomplish with what's been going on. So if this was a conspiracy, if this was a push to remove a sitting president and actually to stop candidate Donald Trump from ever taking office, then I wouldn't have said anything. I would have just let the report go out. I would have sat on it. I wouldn't have said a word. And I would have looked, how can this apply to the bigger case? But I'm not William Barr, and apparently he's a genius, and I'm not a lawyer, so I've got to take... Take it from the experts and the people who know him that he knows what he's doing. And I also think, as Joe DeGeneva wrote in a great column for FoxNews.com, that maybe he wanted to show we're not going to go after these little minor things like Robert Mueller did and others to just target people and take them down being vindictive. We're going to go after the big cases. We're going to focus on the big evidence and we're going to expose what's going on in America. I hope they do that, because if they don't, we have fundamentally lost our faith in this system. Two-tier justice is what I will say every single day on every single podcast if people are not held accountable for what happened to this country and for what we've been through and for what happened to President Trump and his family and those people that worked with him. How is it possible that Hillary doesn't face anything for what she did. Can you imagine if you had evidence and the FBI was going to sequester your computer, your phones, and you were smashing them with hammers and you were using programs to erase, permanently erase all of your data, what would happen to you? Can you imagine what you would go to jail? You would go to jail. You would face a jury. You would be charged. None of that happened to Hillary Clinton. 
But look how many people uh, Robert Mueller was able to hook on to his belt, right? And to check the box. Okay, I got General Mike Flynn, who gave over 32 years of his life serving this country for what? For not signing a FARA appropriately. He had to plead guilty. They were threatening him. They took away his I mean, he lost his home. He's millions of dollars. Uh, all of the 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 fighting and everything that happened behind the scenes, threatening his son so that he would plead guilty and so that they would have another notch on their belt. And all of the prosecutions that had nothing to do with Russia conspiracy or with anything that the president did that was, uh, and no obstruction, by the way, and no obstruction. Look, I, I mean, I could go on all day about this, but there's so much more in the news. I think it's a wait and see game, folks. I think we've got to hold people accountable, even Attorney General William Barr, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but let's keep watching. Let's see what happens. We have to hold everybody accountable, and we have to have justice in this country. It's just that important. We do not have a two-tiered justice system in this nation. We should not. We are not a banana republic. But I want to take you to another Russia story that I think is so important. And I remember this day. So (laughs) this was 1987. It was the historic arms control treaty that was signed by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Remember Perestroika, the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Iron Wall. Let me play a clip from you from that great moment. This was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and here is that day relived. For the first time in history, the language of arms control was replaced by arms reduction. In this case, the complete elimination of an entire class of U.S. and Soviet nuclear missiles. Wow. Ronald Reagan. That was a huge historic moment. That was his legacy. One of his legacies. Really, the greatest legacy was the end of the Soviet Union. The fall of the Iron Curtain. Incredible, incredible moment. Now, the Trump administration has moved to scrap the INF Treaty. This is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty to reduce the nuclear weapons. And why? Because they say Russia, President Vladimir Putin. Now, this is incredible, right? I mean, I thought we were supposed to be like, you know, this administration was supposed to be buddy, buddy. And uh, this is just this is just another example of how tough this administration has been on uh, on Russia and You know, and Russia has not been our friend in these cases. And we know this. Russia has been working behind the scenes, has not been abiding by the treaty, according to the administration. And this change, this changes everything. I mean, this is a geopolitical shift between us and the Russian Federation and Vladimir Putin. So we are ending this treaty with Russia because the Trump administration says There's been a material breach in the treaty, which means they have not been abiding by the treaty. They have given them six months to come into compliance and they have not done that. What does this mean for us? This is this is pretty serious. This could be the beginning of a new arms race between both of our countries. Two nations which possess the world's largest arsenal of nuclear weapons. 
You know, and the Trump administration has made this very clear. They say it's Russia's fault the treaty came to the end. They blame the Kremlin. They blame Moscow for developing and fielding weapons that they say violate the treaty and threaten the United States and its allies, particularly in Europe. There's been issues with Ukraine. We've seen issues with Russia dealing on the back end with Iran, and that is a potentially big problem for us. So we're holding them accountable. We're holding them accountable. You know, I'm going to, I just want everybody to take a moment to think about what this means for us because everything is changing right now. And I'm not sure how I feel about this. I mean, I think we need so much more information before we make any decisions. I mean, how is this going to affect us in five, 10 years? Will Russia back away and say, okay, look, let's, let's, let's take a deep breath. I doubt it. I doubt it. Will the United States do that? I doubt it. So right now, folks, Cold War era treaty done and gone. And that isn't the only news. That isn't the only news. We have even more news. And this one affects me personally more than anything. Uh, Maybe because my husband served in the military for so long, his entire life, retired from the military, fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and was also wounded in Afghanistan while he was fighting terrorists in the region, lost his eyesight. We lost a lot of great friends in Afghanistan, and a lot of people were wounded, people that we loved, just like my husband, you know, who live every day with those battle wounds, both inside and on the outside. So right now, there's been another big shift. It's not just Russia. The United States is preparing right now to withdraw thousands of troops from Afghanistan. But listen to this. They initiated the deal with the Taliban. And I don't know if people are even paying attention to this anymore. Every day we're losing people or people are being injured in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in other places throughout the world. Uh, Military, our intelligence personnel, they are giving everything they can to fight terrorists and keep them from coming back to the United States particularly from another attack like September 11th. This has been a long battle. And in Afghanistan, it's been the longest war. Over 17 years, over 17 years, trillions of dollars. But more importantly, U.S. lives on the line. And, you know, I hear people telling me all the time, you know, I'm so, oh, I'm sick and tired of this war. I'm so tired of the war. Bring our troops home. It's over. No, it's never over. Unfortunately, for our enemies, it's never over. They don't think like us. I've spent a lot of time in the region. I've spent a lot of time with the Mujahideen. Those were the Afghans, the Afghan people that were fighting the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, before we ever went there. That was when our CIA, under Reagan and others, began supplying Stinger missiles. And we made life so difficult for the Russians, for the Soviets at the time. And the Soviets were losing money, losing lives as well. I mean, this is a place where, you're right, it is not a place 
where empires win wars. It is a place where empires die. So this is a tough region. But the Taliban supported Al-Qaeda. The Taliban gave them safe harbor. The Taliban allowed them to train. That's why we were there. And personally, we screwed up that mission from the get-go. We did our best in the beginning. We fought. We pushed the Taliban. We pushed Al-Qaeda. And then they went over to the mountains during the fight in Tora Bora and disappeared into Pakistan. And we didn't go after them. And Al-Qaeda was allowed to fester there. And we've spent 17 years trying to win something back. This is a very difficult decision. I know personally, even for the president, we've heard him say over and over again, and I've heard people very close to the president say, why are we there? What are we going to achieve there? I'll tell you what we can achieve. We can't have battalions on the ground fighting like we did before. We can't invest trillions of dollars into government reconstructive efforts in Afghanistan without any oversight. But we also can't just walk away. We can't just walk away and turn everything over to the Taliban and let the Qataris, who we know have been working against us, who we know have been assisting terrorist groups in the region with financing and other issues to play this game with us. What we can do is meet somewhere in the middle. We can keep strong forces on the ground. We can train those people from the region that are fighting like we have been. And we continue to fight to keep those terrorist organizations from reconstituting themselves in that region. Because I have sources there. I talk all the time. I know Al-Qaeda is rebuilding. Al-Qaeda is rebuilding in Pakistan. Al-Qaeda is rebuilding in India. And yes, Al-Qaeda and other Arab terrorist groups are in Afghanistan right now. And if we walk away completely and we leave Afghanistan to itself, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. We are going to be back there in 10 or 12 years after another major attack. Once we figure out that those safe havens have been reestablished, the billions of dollars, trillions of dollars that we've spent of American taxpayer dollars down a proverbial toilet and all the lives and all the sacrifices made by our soldiers and our troops for nothing, for nothing. These are really difficult topics, folks. I think we really need to think about them. And I know people say they're tired of war. But as I wrap up Afghanistan, I want to tell you this. Nobody is more tired of war than the men and women who fought there. And let me tell you this. It's less than 1% of the American populace. So when you think you're tired, those volunteer service members, those people who join the military and are willing to fight so that you don't have to see those attacks here at home, they're the ones that are really tired. But guess what? Almost every single one of them would do it again. They'd go back, they'd fight for their country, and they'd be willing to give their lives for their country. So think about that. They're never that tired. Here's someone who never gets tired. Here's someone who's a soldier for her cause. I am so grateful to have on the show today Miss Iraq, Sarah Idan. She is an incredible, incredible woman. She spoke before the United Nations. 
Uh, she's now under threat by Iraq of having her citizenship revoked because she posed in a photo with Miss Israel during the Miss Universe pageant. This is incredible, folks. This is really incredible. She is an incredible Muslim woman. She is speaking out for moderate Muslims across the globe. She's not afraid to stand up. She is the epitome of what feminism is all about, right? Or this idea, a woman that is going to stand up and change the course of things on the geopolitical stage. And I want you to hear what she had to say to the United Nations, because this is incredible. Let's play it, Madeline. I represented Iraq at Miss Universe. I posted a photo with Miss Israel on social media. I was told to remove it and forced to denounce Israeli policies. I received death threats. Since then, I can no longer return to my homeland. Why did the Iraqi government fail to condemn the threats or allow my freedom of speech? The issue between Arab... Wow, just incredible. It must have been very, very tough for her. And it still is to this day. She lives in California. I have her with me now on the line. Are you there, Sarah? Yes. Oh, it's so great to talk to you. It's it's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think you have such an incredible story to tell. And you've done so much for so many women around the world by speaking out, not just Muslim women, but women all across the globe, women in Israel, women in the United States, uh, Christians, Jews. I want to talk. First, I want you to tell your story. Tell me a little bit about your life in Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. growing up in Iraq, and then your immigration to the United States. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I was born in uh, Baghdad in 1990. And uh uh, around the invasion, when we had the U.S. invasion in 2003, um, I started teaching myself English by listening to music and by talking to the soldiers, the U.S. soldiers outside, um, because I felt like I spent 13 years of my life living in a lie, in a bubble. Uh, you know, we had everything like controlled by Saddam, including the media, no access to the Internet. So we had no idea what was going on. Uh, outside of Iraq, in you know, in the world, and you know, the only stations we had, there were like three stations controlled by him. So everything that we heard was through Saddam and through his beliefs or what he wanted us to believe. Um, and you know, we've been always terrified from the U.S. because, uh, as how we see it, it's like a country that just wants to. Uh, 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 to want to fight us, want to have war with us. And, you know, as a kid, you don't understand politics. You don't know why. So, you know, and people, they tell you that, oh, the U.S. is evil. Israel is evil. So, you know, when I saw the soldiers, the U.S. soldiers the first time, how they came and how they talked to us, they gave us candy and flowers. And they were like just one of the like nicest people. And, uh, so I wanted to know more because, you know, all of a sudden I see these people, they're completely different what, than what Saddam have described to us. Um, so I taught myself English and by the age of 18, I uh, started working with the U.S. military 
uh, as a translator um, in the green zone and uh, in uh, Biop, which is called uh, uh, Liberty. I remember it. I remember, yeah, yeah, Liberty Base. So that's incredible. Let me go back to that because your Mm -hmm. childhood, you you brought up something very important here. Because Mm -hmm. when somebody spends their entire life being told one thing and then they see something different, that's got to be a shock to your system. Was it difficult for you to adjust to that or was it something that allowed you their kindness, their charitableness of the troops? Was that did that allow you to integrate easier with U.S. troops and with the idea of of the United States not being this diabolical nation that was just invading? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I guess the main reason why we felt a bit strong before that about the U.S. was because of fear. You know, we've all, as a kid, I've always feared that, you know, these people, they wanted to kill me. And if I see soldiers, they, they probably want to shoot me. This is what we've, you know, we've been brainwashed, like what, what the U.S. government wants to do with us. They want to kill innocent people. This is what they tell us. So when you meet them and they're so nice to you and, uh, you know, around that time, there were many changes happening. I mean, everything was changing, everything, everything. Um, you know, there was no government, no system, and all these crazy, crazy things happening at the same time. So maybe I think that made the transition very easy because you were already like you're going through like a new phase, something that you have never, ever experienced. And, you know, it's like it goes like it's all around, whether the people, how they treat you, um, uh, you know, the system, the schools, everything was changing all of it at the same time. So I think that made the transition easy. When you were 18 and you went to work as a translator uh, for for the United States, what was your family thinking? I mean, you know, a lot of people don't understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, Iraq, Iraq overall is a very highly educated, uh, mm-hmm. the beginning of everything, you know, so much history in your nation and you and the people of Iraq suffered so much uh, over the last decades. What did your family think when you told them I'm going to work with U.S. forces and, and translate for them? So my siblings, they were okay. They were happy with it. Uh, However, my mom and my dad, they felt very strongly. And only it's because what I was trying to do goes against the culture and goes against, you know, what... Uh, what we were brought up to do because in Iraq, it's basically most of the women, first of all, most of the women, they don't work. Most of the women, they go from their uh, father's home to their husband's home. And, you know, this is how they live. So for me to leave my home and to go live on a base with thousands of soldiers, my especially my dad, he was so scared. He was so worried. And uh, in the beginning, when I work, I started working. They were completely against it, but I told them, I said, "This is something I have to do. I'm sorry. I'm 18, and I know what I want, and I feel, you know, this is the right thing to do." And I started working. My dad did not speak to me for about three months, you know. Oh. And yes, he was he was angry with me, but uh, you know, after he saw that I was working and I was doing a lot of great things, and I was being independent and all of that, 
um, he, he called me, he apologized and he said, I want you to know, I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of you and what you're doing, but I am, I am just a father and you're my daughter. And I was worried about you being on a base with these men, you know, so I, I completely understand it's, you know, how we were brought up. Well, that's that's the issue that a lot of Americans don't realize. I, you know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, but as an American, um, my father worked uh, in the Mm -hmm. kingdom and I spent like the most formidable years of my life, uh, my childhood there in Jeddah. Mm -hmm. And so life is just different in Iraq. It was less stringent than Saudi Arabia, of course. So it was different. Can you Describe a little bit of your childhood living under Saddam Hussein, what it was like, how different was it from from now for you? Um, It was completely different. I mean, there were some good aspects and but, you know, it was mostly bad. But because I was a child, you know, when they took out Saddam, it was only I was only 13. Uh, but even, you know, even as a child, like I think what I enjoyed in Iraq and what uh, makes me feel bad about Iraq right now is that we did have security. Um, so, you know, you feel safe going out, you feel safe, you, you know, th- there are no bombing or, you know, car bombs or any of that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's one good thing that we had during Saddam. But, but besides that, everything else was a mess. Uh, we did not have electricity only a few hours a day. Um, the food and the medication and all of that, it was really bad, you know, and uh, Saddam did not really care for his people. He was building his palaces and maybe developing weapons and all of that. And he left the people live in poverty. Um, we had no freedom to speak against him. And, uh, you know, I, I remember even if we were making a joke, like my dad would get so angry because he knows. And he said, you know, he, he used to tell us, don't say anything because, and, and it's true, if you say anything bad about him in somebody uh, who works for him and he has people who work for him all over and they hear you say th- something they will come uh, after you and your family you know that was his policy he kills you and the family so that nobody comes and you know in revenge and uh, so you know as a child I did not thank God I did not experience uh you know, all these bad things that yes. Saddam was doing to other people and especially to the minorities like uh, the Shia and the Kurdish and uh, so many you know, were slaughtered. People. So many huh? people, so many people were slaughtered. Exactly. They were just exactly. a lot of people don't remember this, but Saddam would would slaughter people. He and his groups, uh, his bands would go out and the Mm -hmm. Shia were slaughtered and there was great division inside Iraq because of what was going on and it Mm -hmm. was tearing families apart and communities apart. I want to talk to you a little bit about Mm -hmm. Syria and I'm trying to bring the audience up to where I want them to hear your story because it's such an incredible story and then what happened to you recently is just unbelievable but let's Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about syria you know going to syria your life as a refugee all of these issues that you were dealing with at the time and and going back to your work as a translator um so when we went to syria i was i think 15 and uh that was very very difficult time for us because you know we were threatened uh, 
and we ha- we were forced to leave our home and a stranger family you know they uh, they came and they stayed in our home and we we went to Syria and uh it was very difficult there to go to school to uh for my parents to work um because you know we were we were kind of like we were refugees but we're we're not like they do not consider you a refugee because we go there we apply for the UN uh but we were living there as tourists you know and they would they can like they wouldn't give us anything like not the UN not the UN organization nobody gave us anything although they had our file in our case but we had to go every six months we had to drive to the borders which was like six seven hours and it, it was you know it was very uh, it was very exhausting and, and you know during that time I mean Syria was not doing well financially and I think that the reason they they were bringing Iraqis because they wanted their economy uh, to bloom. So in a way we were not happy and we were really missing, uh, you know, going back to Iraq, but at the same time, we know that we cannot go back to Iraq. So must've been a very difficult difficult time. time It must've been a very difficult time for you and Mm -hmm. your family. Uh, let's go, let's fast forward, right. Mm -hmm. To miss Iraq. Um, Mm -hmm. you're the first ever to represent Iraq in the last 45 years. You were the first, uh, in 45 years to represent Iraq in the Miss Universe, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and what made you decide to do that? And and of course, I know you have a great love for music mm-hmm. and singing. Um, that's another part of you. But what made you decide, particularly with everything that has been happening in the Middle East, to decide to do this? Um, so the first time I participated in the pageant was in the U.S. It was called Miss Iraq USA, and it wasn't really my idea. It was my sister's, <laughs> and uh, they said, Sarah, like, we think you have what it takes. Why don't you just uh, go and participate? So I, I, I went, I participated. I did not ex- expect to win, and I won. And I think the only reason I won was because of my answers, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and... Uh, then I got called for Miss Iraq. But when I called, got called for Miss Iraq and they said they wanted to send a delegate uh, to the, uh, Miss Universe, I mean, I prayed and I prayed and I said, please, God, let it be me because I know that I can represent my country at the best way that may be better than anyone, you know, that I know because I've already... I've, you know, I've been here for, at the time, for almost eight years or seven years. And, and I, that is here had... in the United States, correct? That's here yes. in the United States. Let me go back to that a little mm-hmm. bit, because the audience is going to, this is very, very important to the people that are mm-hmm. listening right now. You, talk about coming to the United States with your family, what it was like for you, and how you feel about being an American and being here. Um. So the thing is, I, I, did, I came alone. I did not come with my family. Uh-huh. I came when I was 19 and I uh, went to music school in Los Angeles. And it, life was very, very difficult because you come to a country, you don't know people, especially in California. Most of the people that I knew, they were my military buddies in Texas and Arkansas, you know, like no one here. <laughs> um, so I, I basically I came to this strange 
you know, city and like I had to build a life and it took me uh, many years. I worked every job that you can think of and, you know, I was just trying to build a future. Um, you know, but the thing is, I, even when I, even when I suffered, even when I went through a lot and I was by myself, I never, ever wanted to leave. I mean, I love, you know, I love this country and, uh, I, I don't think that I, I've traveled a lot in my life. I don't think I've ever been to a country where I feel like, I, I feel like here more at home than when I, than in Iraq, you know? Um, because it's everything, it's all these like ideologies that fit my ideologies since I was a kid. And I dreamed about coming here because I feel, um, I hear, I feel like I can, like, I'm not lonely. If that makes any sense, you, you feel there's many people, they understand you and they have the same beliefs and, uh, the same ideologies. So in a way I, when I was in Iraq, I grew up my whole life, I was, I've always felt alone. I've always felt alone and misunderstood. And I couldn't talk about many issues, but here you have freedom, you know, which I think people, they really, they take it for granted. I'll be honest with you. It's something that you cannot find in another country. Um, so, you know, for me, even when I struggled, it was worth it. It was completely worth it. That's that's a really good point. You know, we hear so much right now, especially divisions mm -hmm. in the United States. I'm sure you watch the news. You see the political mm -hmm. divide. Yes. We hear people even, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's a misconception about Muslim women. And when you see things in the news and you hear... You know, maybe even with Representative Ilhan Omar and her statements mm. about America. And I know this is not how a lot of my Muslim friends feel that are here. Um, I mean, Ilhan Omar does not represent me as a Muslim, does not represent millions of Muslims in the Middle, in the middle East. You know, like in Arab countries, we call her the Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. No, I'm very familiar, but, but you, you explain. Know, I'm familiar, but you explain to our li our listeners what what the Muslim Brotherhood is in so your the, so the Muslim Brotherhood they are extremist Muslims Sunni Muslims um, who are now uh, working together with Iran against all the Arab countries. They're working now with Hezbollah, with Turkey, with all that. Uh, you know, like they the thing is about this organization. They are extremist Muslims. They're jihadis and. Uh, they have this ideology that they they want to control the world. And they, they've been responsible for most of the wars that we have and most of the conflicts in the Middle East, they are behind it. Uh, in the main, you know, one of the, like the main countries, Iran, uh, although they're not the Muslim Brotherhood, but now they work together. Um, but Qatar is also a huge you know, uh, how do you say, like a supporter, supporter, or a supporter yeah, financially and everything. And uh, the thing about these people, they come to you and I think what they're doing here in the U.S., like whether it's Elhan or whether it's Rashida or Linda Sarsour, they come, they use like, the, you know, how the how the left and uh, how the liberals, they really open to uh, 
uh, other nationalities. It's all about acceptance and about freedom. And these women, I think they, they try to use that to attack the country. They so they use it against that. them, using what yes, using yes. what the, what is naturally the in, initial freedoms of this country. You know, trying to be accepting, mm-hmm. trying to be embracing of of all cultures, of all aspects. But then anybody who questions anything mm-hmm. is then a racist or anti-Muslim. Folks, that's, it's that's not like all, that. Yeah, th- it's that's not- how they, uh, that's how they get the sympathy. They feed on the sympathy of people, you know. And I think I, I think that this whole thing, like I feel like sometimes that they planned the whole thing. Like they brought a woman. She's like three minorities, you know, and one like she's Muslim. <laughs> she's black. She's an immigrant. If you say anything, you're anti-immigrant. You're a racist. You're Islamophobe. So you cannot really attack her. And she's very well spoken. It seems like she came here like she already knows what she's doing. She came with on a mission every time I hear her speak. And it's so like it really angers me as a Muslim that when she gets asked about uh, uh, condemning terrorists and she's like, oh, I refuse now. I refuse. No, I'm not. Or FGM. Uh, I, I, you know, I saw that a while ago. And FGM and that's has, female no, uh, gen- has nothing one to second. do with Islam. One second, you know? Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. That's female genital mutilation. Yes. It is not part of uh, Islam overall. Many Muslim women, this has never happens. It does happen in some parts in of Africa, Africa. Yeah. and North mm-hmm. Africa. It's not something uh, it's it's condemned, of course, mm-hmm. by so many people. But then you'll see people that are saying it's part of their culture or part of their religion. And I want I want you to explain it's, the moderate Muslim woman. You say okay. you mm-hmm. say I'm a moderate Muslim woman. Most most listeners don't understand what that means. They've been they've been shown one thing, but mm-hmm. but they don't understand it. So explain to them what that means. So so a moderate Muslim is uh, basically you believe in God, you believe in Muhammad, um, you believe in being a good person, you believe in the judgment day in heaven and hell. But we, I do not, for example, like I do not pray five times a day. I pray when I can, <laughs> you know, I'm not like, I'm not religious. Like I, I, and I don't think that we need And many people, all the, all the moderate Muslims, they want to separate the Sharia from uh, the government and they want you to have freedom. And it's basically like, you know, being a Christian, um, but not very religious Christian or being a, a Jew who is not very religious Jew. You believe in God and you believe in all of that, but you you just don't like, for example, I don't believe that God is concerned with what I'm dressed, you know. You and believe in the secular it, state. Yes, you know, because there's even like chapter, you know, chapters in Quran that says that God does not look to how you look and how you dress. That's actually, listen, it looks to your heart and what you do. And I believe in that. I believe God is like not concerned with our looks. You know, I mean, we talk about us as humans and we say we shouldn't be that shallow and judge people by how they look. That's right. And this is something that I don't think a lot of Americans understand. A lot of Americans don't realize because they're not seeing this. They're seeing one side of this. They don't Mm -hmm. hear the moderate Muslims like Dr. Kanta Ahmed, like you and others who Mm -hmm. have come out and said, look, I don't even wear hijab, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm going to fight for rights. And that's where I want to just bring you because I know I'm going to have to wrap this up. And the most important part of this whole interview for me is that Mm -hmm. you stood up 
to the government of Iraq and you went to the United Nations and you spoke to the United Nations, I want to talk about the picture that you took with Miss Israel and how it led to all of this and to the fact now that the Iraqi government is threatening to take away your citizenship. Um, so, you know, I took the photo. When I took the photo, I had no idea it was going to be this big. I never, ever thought that. You know, and when I took it, I guess I was thinking my American mentality because she came to me and uh, Adar and she was scared to approach me. And, you know, when I asked her, she said, you know, because I'm from Israel. So I, I felt really ashamed. And I told her, I said, you know what? I said, if anything, uh, uh, like we need to show the people that we are against that. We are here to promote peace. And, uh, you know, we're like peace ambassadors. So we took the photo together. And, you know, I woke up the next day with Miss Iraq, with my family, like my phone ringing and messages. Uh, the Miss Iraq organization, the first thing they did, they threatened to take my title. And they say, you sided with a country uh, that's uh, an enemy. Uh, to Iraq and you need to make a, a statement saying you do not support their policies and that was while I was you know in the pageant in Las Vegas so I had to make this statement and I said you know this is just a, a message to spread love and the coexistence but I do not support the Israeli policy but I was basically forced to say that and the minute I was done with the organization I deleted that post and then I just started speaking more and more because before that I had no idea that there was a huge anti-Semitism. I, I, you know, I grew up in a loving family and, you know, although, you know, we had war with Israel, but we never had war with Jews as religion. And I, I basically, when I started getting all these hateful, hateful comments and messages that talk about them, like they dehumanize them, they describe them as monkeys and pigs, and they say they're not even human and they deserve to die. And then I began to see that extreme, you know, the extremist Muslims. And, you know, I understand when you say that, you know, many Americans, they only get to see one part of Islam. They don't get to see the moderate. But, you know, I kind of I, I don't blame, blame them for being so uh, cautious because we do have a huge, huge level of extremists that needs to be fought. But unfortunately, uh, here in the U.S., we have the wrong representatives. We need moderate Muslims who are not tied with terrorist organizations that represent our country. And, and to so fight to these women who try to act like they are representative for Muslims because they are not. Where does it stand now, Sarah? Where are you at now with the situation with Iraq? I mean, and I know you've also received mm -hmm. death threats, so... I, you know, it's this is a very serious situation, folks. This is she has chosen to come forward in a in a in a geopolitical storm now, and everybody is just. And I know I'm using that word over and over again today because that's what we're seeing all across the globe. Things are shifting and changing. This is this is a whole podcast about foreign policy issues, but she has really been targeted for standing up for standing up for what she believes in and for standing up for peace. So can you explain where you're at right now um, and what the situation is like? Um, this situation, the Iraqi government refused to make any comments. Um, I, uh, I had, I think, uh, CBS. They uh, contacted the Iraqi uh, embassy. 
They did not answer them. I, I did not contact the Iraqi embassy. I mean, I'm still worried. I wouldn't even want them to know my phone number or where I live. You know, wow. I, I do not trust it because I feel like the Iraqi government right now is a representative for Iran. They're not even representative for the Iraqi people. And everything that I've been saying, everything that I uh, stand for is against the Iranian regime. Um, so this is why... Um, I, I think they, they could have stripped my citizenship. I never contacted them. If you can contact them, <laughs> let me know. I absolutely I mean, will contact them. Mm-hmm. And Iraq, I am going to keep contacting you, the government of Iraq, until I get an mm-hmm. answer as to what happened with Sarah Idan's citizenship. Um, you're also a U.S. citizen, correct? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. And your family is still in Iraq, correct? No, no, uh, they left to they another left? Arab country. Oh, yes, okay, yes. thank God. They had death threats. So yeah. under death threats, they had to leave Iraq. Think about this, mm-hmm. people. Think about what it's like to live under these kind of threats. And think about how lucky we are as Americans to live in such a great country. Sarah, exactly. I could talk to yes. you for mm-hmm. hours for hours. And I'm going to bring you back on the show. I think your story is amazing. And next time we can get more into details about what happens in the Middle East, what it's like living as a woman in the Middle East. And maybe you can clarify for people, you know, that may be misperceiving what it's like to be a Muslim woman. And I thank you so much for your honesty. I thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope people really listen to this podcast because it's so important for us to understand each other and it's so important for us to understand where we're coming from so that we can avoid conflict and that we can find solutions. Thank you, Sarah. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. Such an incredible interview with Sarah Don. She is such a brave, brave woman. I don't know how to express my I grew up in the Middle East. I have so many Muslim friends. I spent most of my career traveling to South Asia and to the Middle East, where Islam is the primary and dominant, of course, religion. And I can't even begin to tell you how brave Sarah Idan is. Some of the things she said on this podcast today, if she said them, even in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, God only knows what could have happened to her. You know, she's very brave. She's telling her story. She's standing up for women all over the world. We need to support her. We need to listen to her. We need to tell her story. This is important, folks. We need to support women like Sarah Don, who immigrated to this country, who love America, who want to be a part of this great American fabric and give so much back to this country. These are the women and the immigrants that we should be supporting and backing. And I, you know, I could have talked to her forever. I know I've been talking forever. I'm going to have to wrap this up. I promise you I'll be back next week with another update on James Comey. And we'll get that report out to you as fast as it comes out. Michael Horowitz is going to have his report out on Comey anytime now. Please go to SarahACarter.com. That's SarahACarter.com. For all the latest stories, I can't wait to be back with you next week. We are taking back the story, folks, and this is where the story begins. Thank you for joining us. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. 
The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute. But then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. This weekend, get to Kohl's and take an extra 15% off. Save on the Ninja Foodi Grill, now just $279.99. Take 50% off all Serta bedding. Get up to 40% off Sonoma Bath and so much more. Plus, get a little more for your wallet with Kohl's Cash. Plus, fast and free store pickup. Let the gifting start for those close to your heart. Shop Kohl's and Kohl's.com. Select styles. Offers valid October 9th through 18th. 15% off with promo code leaves. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.